you know, when I tell you something's easy, when I tell you something's achievable, when I tell you something's quick and, and practical, it is. Hello and welcome to My Signature Dish. I'm Ollie Horn. This is the podcast where I speak to talented home cooks, find out their story and learn about their signature dish. I'm particularly excited about this episode as it's the first episode that I've recorded on location. Last week I visited the BBC Good Food Show at the Birmingham NEC, uh, thanks to the very kind invitation of my friend Sammy, who's one of the food economists and stylists who works backstage there. Uh, It's a brilliant event and I got a chance to meet dozens of incredible independent producers, uh, some of which you'll be hearing from on future episodes of this show. But this episode doesn't feature one of those exhibitors, but rather one of the presenters of the Good Food Show, Chris Bavin. If you live in the UK, you almost certainly know who Chris is. Uh, He's the presenter of Eat Well for Less, Britain's Best Home Cook, uh, and a number of other food and science documentaries besides. I'm a big fan of Chris. I love his kind of no-nonsense style of TV presenting. And the shows that he's presented have done so much for food education in the UK in a really kind of matter-of-fact way. I managed to catch Chris between his presenting duties backstage at the show and our conversation starts with Chris explaining to us how he got into the food industry in the first place. Enjoy. I started uh, importing flowers as a junior flower trader when I was 16, 17, um, bringing flowers in from, from all over the world and selling to the wholesale markets. In the UK, we've got, well, around the world, actually, they've got wholesale markets and, and these places supply uh, the florists or the greengrocers or the street traders or the barrow boys. So I was supplying them with, first of all, with flowers and then I moved into fresh produce. Um, I've been working with fresh produce now, fruits and vegetables for over 20 years and have fell in love with, you know, the different varieties, the different seasons, the, you know, the times of year when, when things are at their absolute best, you know, and, and the simplicity of, of, of really great fruits, veg, herbs, whatever it might be. And then from that, I sort of fell in love with cooking. But... The reason that I got into the media industry was we opened a, a fruit and veg shop in 2009 called The Naked Grocer. It was all about zero packaging, you know, reducing our carbon footprint. Which was completely ahead of its time, wasn't it? Oh, only, abso- only like this week now are supermarkets trialing a, a, a plastic-free yeah. fruit and veg aisle. And we were doing it 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah, we were probably a fraction too far ahead of a curve. You don't want to be too far ahead of a curve. <laughs> right. you, you can be just before it, but not maybe eight, nine, ten years in front of it. Um, but it did really well, and we had it for seven or eight years, and I loved it. I absolutely loved having the shop, you know, meeting the public, yeah, having you know this a wonderful array of, of of beautiful seasonal fresh produce. Um, and we went really went back to basics, you know, with everything having to do exactly what it was supposed to do. The tomatoes tasted like tomatoes, you know. We had everything. Everything that we sold did exactly what you would expect it to do, i.e. taste the way it should or the way you remember it tasting. Did what it said on the tin, even though there were no tins. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Certainly no plastic packaging. But um, So then we had the shop for six, seven, eight years, seven or eight years. Just about the shop, I, I can definitely believe that one of the things that you enjoyed about that job was meeting people. Right? Yeah. Clearly you're a people person. What kind of questions would they be asking you when they were buying their fruit and veg? Uh, which is the best way to cook this or what variety or, or, um, you know, even, or even coming in and saying, I've got people coming around, what should I cook? Yeah. The great thing about a greengrocer or a fishmonger or a butcher is they're experts in, in that area. So when you come in and ask me at a specific time of the year, what's good value? What, and value for me doesn't necessarily talk about money. That's part of it. But value as in you know, what am I going to get the most out of? So that's you know, in terms of flavor, in terms of nutrition, in terms of you know, uh, volume. You know, how do I make the most of, of my purchase yeah. and get the most for my money. You and know. also your skill set as well. Maybe a less ambitious cook you know, might not want to get a certain type of produce that needs a little bit more technique. Um, were there any kind of misconceptions that people had that, that you, were, you were fixing in the process of selling them fruit and veg? Uh, well, I mean, the misconceptions in and around sort of fruit and veg is, is that maybe there, there isn't a huge difference in in terms of flavour or in terms of varieties or in terms of countries of origin. Um, so I think in terms of getting, giving the public the understanding of of where things came from. I mean, people don't necessarily differentiate between, you know, easy peelers. Say for example, you know, within the the family of easy peeler, you have clementines, you have clemenures, you have ori, you have nadicots, you have satsuma, you have tangerines. You know, you have this whole 
but but some people just look at them as small oranges. You'd be great at that round on pointless, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I hope so. Otherwise, I might look quite foolish. But but that's the thing, you know. So and grapes, you know, a, a grape can vary. You know, we buy grapes now in green, red, or black, seedless or seeded. But there's a whole host of variables within that. You have different times of year, different countries of origin, different varieties. So just because you've eaten a, a, a you know a grape. This week that may have you know been early season Egyptian or whatever doesn't mean and you didn't particularly like it doesn't mean to say that you don't like green grapes you just didn't like very early season Egyptian grapes but then when we move into you know Spanish or Chilean or Israeli or wherever it Peruvian you know there's so many different complexities within yeah. you know fruit and veg in terms of where it comes from and the variety that actually it was good to sort of try and you know open people's eyes to that a little bit. The first time I ever um, cooked with Japanese garlic, yep. right, most of the garlic which, which I would have been using would have been either British or Chinese, which yep. I think is very similar. Yep. It completely changed how I used the ingredient, right? Because yeah. it, it cooks differently, it smells different. And, and, and I spoke, one thing I realized is the offers that we get at the supermarket, right, is like they, they may, they'll maybe give us three choices of potatoes, two choices of onion, if, if we're lucky. And, and that, that kind of creates a, a false illusion of really what's out there, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. You will. It, it reduces your choice, doesn't it? And that's the thing, you know. And I think that's why, you know, I have always advocated that, you know, the the sort of going back to to how we used to do it and go and buy your food from experts in that field. So when you go to your fishmonger or your butcher or your greengrocer, you know, they can they can give you a better steer. You know, if you're making mashed potato, they can recommend a certain variety of potato. If you're making chips, a certain another one or roast potatoes, another one that you know entirely hey can i have a really quick master class on this so my view is best uh potato for a roast potato yukon gold yeah yeah what, what's your what's your tip well i uh, yeah i mean that that is a good choice but that's possibly not accessible for everybody all the time so i think you know if you go with a king edward or a Mary's piper you know basically you want a quite a flowery sort of potato what does flowery mean flowery basically means uh higher dry the, the technical terminology is high dry matter so basically there's not a huge amount of moisture within that but they're fluffy yeah okay so so when you want that sort of you want a crisp sort of outside and you want that really fluffy um fluffy center you you want a flowery high dry matter within your potato basically so with something like i mean we don't really eat boiled potatoes a lot now we yeah. we, we, we would use uh, new potatoes to to do that job but before we would have had boiled potatoes um or salad potatoes you want a waxier potato and what does waxy mean waxy means that there's a bit more moisture in there so it's not it's not going to fall apart basically you're having it you're cooking it in a different way you're boiling it to a much you know a higher yeah. point so and, and it still maintains its structure it maintains yeah. its structure and you've got that sort of creaminess to it so, so is, is that the scale then when, when you're thinking about potatoes is it kind of waxy on one end of the scale mm. and then dry dry on the other end of the scale absolutely right. yeah and um, then lots in, in the middle but yeah right and so when a lot of chefs talk about you need a very starchy potato or a not very starchy potato yeah what does that mean so starchy uh i think we're looking at starchy well, I mean, all potatoes are, are, are quite starchy, but I think starchy, when they're talking about that, they're talking about the other end, the fluffier end, so the, the higher, drier matter. Yeah. Um, so ideal for roasting, ideal for chipping, ideal for frying yeah. in one way or another. And, and roasting is, is ultimately, you know, frying you know, yeah, to, yeah. To, to, to some extent or another. So, yeah, I think that's what they're talking about when they say that. I have a feeling I could pick any vegetable and go this deep uh, and, we, and we'd have, you know, six hours of content. But I really feel I should move on because you your story doesn't end with you having this impressive pioneering shop. No. Uh, and I mean, certainly I think the first time I would have been familiar with your work was uh, Eat Well for Less. Yeah. So I think it was a brilliant program. I mean, there's lots of learnings that you can get from that show, right? Can you share for someone that hasn't watched it, what the kind of the takeaway bullet pointed, this is the message of the show? So Eat Well for Less, basically, we go to people's fam. We, we, we start working with a family that have approached us. Uh, we look at what they're spending on food, look at the foods that they're buying, look at the, the meals that they're cooking, um, looking at their shopping habits. And then we try and improve it. Basically, we want, you know, ultimately the main headline is reduce their overall spend without compromising on their enjoyment of food, uh, which you can do absolutely 100%. But then along the way that we, we, we try and increase their veg consumption, we try and make their diet slightly healthier, we try and re lessen their reliance on convenience foods or takeaway foods um, or processed foods. So, you know, we, we sort of try and take a, a, a 360 view of, of basically all the food that they're buying and eating and cooking and see if we can improve it or, or see what we can do to improve it in various different ways. And then we save them a lot of money in some yeah. cases, um, but we certainly improve their diet and, and, and their enjoyment of food, actually. I think so many people now, have there's a pressure, a stress. So many parents, you know, 
day in, day out, faced with a dilemma of, oh, I've got to cook dinner again. What am I going to do? How do I feed my family? This is, it becomes a chore. And cooking, for me, should never be a chore. Yeah. So we want to try and put the love and the fun back into it. And you also kind of share techniques as well, don't you, about how to make just being in the kitchen less daunting. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, cooking is taking a series of ingredients or products, putting them together, and then exposing them to heat for a, for a variable amount of time. I mean, it's not complicated. doesn't sound very difficult when you say it like that, does it? Well, it's not, <laughs> is it? I mean, let's be honest. I mean, there are lots of complicated elements. Of course there are. Yeah. You know, same as anything, you know, and especially when you, when you start to go into, you know, Michelin star quality food or fine dining, you know, there are, there are you know, you, you, when you start to make gels or sous vide or, you know, beads or whatever it might be, you know, there, there's, there's a million and one really complicated foams and all of that you can do. But listen, good home cooking, tasty home, nutritious, healthy cooking isn't hard. It isn't complicated. It isn't, you know, but, but having said that, listen, if you're, if you, if you're struggling with it, then that's absolutely fine. If you've never been shown to do something, then you can't be expected to do it. Well, a lot of people that are listening to this are listening to this not because they're intimidated by their kitchen, because they're intimidated on how to make that transition from being a good home cook to being someone that can potentially showcase their skills on a wider stage to become entrepreneurial, sell their wares. Um, so, so I have two questions in this regard. The first is, can you give me some examples of the transformations that you saw of people that were rubbish in the kitchen and then all of a sudden, based on your interventions, managed to, to create something incredible? And then the second part of that question is, can you think of an example from some of the other shows that you presented where people have taken their great cooking skills and then really taken them to the next level? And what, what are the things that, that bridge those gaps in the, in the kitchen? Well, first of all, in the, in the first instance, it's belief and confidence. And I think that's what we do with eat well for less. I think we hold their hand in the interim and we give them that belief and we give them that confidence. You know, we're there, we're physically there with them and we say, right, you know, you're struggling, you know, with, with kitchen confidence, which, you know, you're not alone. I'm going to stand next to you and we're going to, you know, we're going to cook this together. We don't really, I don't really do any of the cooking. You know, it's about getting them to do it. Do you think the fact that you're not a trained chef helps? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because um, I sort of, so I, I brought a cookbook out this year and first of all I struggled with do I have a credibility to to write a cookbook I've never worked in a commercial kitchen I've never had any formal training you know um, but actually the more I think about it the more I think that makes more sense because neither neither of the people that I want to replicate my, my recipes so you know when I tell you something's easy when I tell you something's achievable when I tell you something's quick and, and practical it is. Yeah. When a Michelin star chef tells you something's easy, it might be easy for them, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's easy for you. You know, in the same way that, you know, um, Deli Alley thinks pulling a, pulling a ball out of the air, you know, yeah, from 30-yard yeah. pass, you know, and controlling it in one touch is easy. Yeah. It's not easy for the rest of us. Uh, and you just don't need to create Michelin star standard food at home, do you? No, you don't. It's supposed to be special. Yeah, of course. Of course, yeah. And, uh, yeah, you're supposed to go and pay a, you know, a reasonable amount of money for it and enjoy it and have it as a treat. But, uh, but cooking at home, you know, is, is you're doing it, you know, two, potentially two, three times every single day. Um, you want it to do, you know, you want it to impress. You want it to taste good. I, you know, I think it should look good as well, but I don't want to be sort of messing around with it. But, um, but I don't think that should be difficult. So in terms of some of the transformations, I mean, we've, we've gone to some families and, and they've gone from not being able to cook at all, you know, relying on ready meals, relying on takeaways, to, to cooking restaurant standard food, you know, good, smart, tasty food, you know, and, and turning it out confidently and in very little time. And then when you go to something like Britain's Best Home Cook, you know, we, they, we, we see some very good cooks and then you see their journey and you see them just build on that and build on that and build on that. And then suddenly they're, they're turning out absolutely incredible plates of food. I'm fascinated to, to hear your thoughts on this because a, a lot of the biggest kind of success stories, certainly in the past 10 years, if you think about, you know, food trucks that have gone on to become pop-ups that have gone on to become restaurants. We've even got national chains now that are a result of someone that's been tinkering in their kitchen. So it really is possible, isn't it? Yeah, it is. What, what do you think sets this kind of ambitious home cook apart from someone that's only ever going to be good at impressing at a dinner party? Well, I suppose it's the desire to do it. I mean, well, <laughs> of course, right. Uh, if you want, if that's what you want, then there's nothing to stop you doing that. It won't be easy by any stretch of the Listen, you know, you can do anything. I think, you know, there's, you know we're, we're, we're in a time now where you're reasonably limitless in, in what you can achieve. 
the only thing that will prevent that or, or you know or one of the only things that will prevent that is 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 you um telling yourself you can't do it or not you know without sounding too blunt not being prepared to put the, the hard work in when i had when i opened my greengrocers um i was working in excess of 80 90 hours a week every single week six and a half seven days a week um and so that was time that you were sourcing the food and also being in the, in yeah, the shop up at three o'clock in the morning into the wholesale market you know not finishing till sort of six seven o'clock at night then you've got orders to do then you've got your books to do then you've got your you know your staffing issues and, and various other things so you know it, it, you can do anything if you're prepared to work hard enough and you know and make some sacrifices as well you know i do a lot of talks to to sort of younger people and and sort of you know with a with a sort of tr- you know with a view to try and inspire them a little bit um and I always say, listen, you can you can achieve anything. I, I think you don't choose to be the best. You can't choose to be the best. You can't choose to be the smartest or the, the fastest or the best at this or the best at that. That's not necessarily always a choice. But what you can always choose to do is be the one that works the hardest. And if you do that for long enough, you will be successful in whatever you do. I do think that's true. I, I don't think enough people believe that, but I do think that's true. It is 100% true. Yeah. Or at least what's certainly true is if you look at all the people that are successful, one of the things that definitely marks them out uh, is the fact that they've all been working hard, right? That's, yeah. that's no accident. No. So, so let, let's talk, I mean, obviously the contestants on uh, Britain's Best Home Cook are incredibly hardworking. I think that's safe yeah. to say. What are the things which you've learned from them? Oh, good question. Uh, I mean, some of, the, some of their inspirations uh, are far and wide. I mean, you've got people with, with various different heritages. Um, and that's nice, you know, you, you start to see lots of different cultures and, and styles of cuisine, which is nice because that, that, you know, I, I grew up in a, a traditional English household, you know, I mean, spaghetti bolognese was probably... As exotic as it got. <laughs> that's, you know, that was, that was exotic. Listen, don't, you know, you laugh. I mean, I grew up in the, night, in the 80s. Um, you know, salad was, was iceberg lettuce, cucumber and, and chopped tomato. Um, and yeah, you know, listen. It was, and salad cream. Sa- of course, yeah, <laughs> yeah. of course. Like dressing, like, I mean, sa- I mean, salads have probably changed unrecognizably from when I was a kid, but so has all food, really. Um, and, and my mum had three children. You know, she had two jobs and my dad worked. You know, my mum was was incredibly busy, and, and and I think cooking was a chore for her. You know, I think it was. You know, which is a shame, but that's how it was. You know, um, so, so obviously that you know, your your parents won't have been exposed to the kind of dishes which you've been exposed to in no. your professional life. Can you think of of some dishes which which uh, are your parents still with us? Yes. Uh, is there anything which now they're enjoying which you couldn't ever imagine they would have enjoyed when you were younger? Yeah, probably quite a lot. I mean, I think, you know, we always had, you know, curry was, was, was still quite popular. I think curry was sort of big in the 60s and 70s and my parents would have, would have had a familiarity with that. But it would have been a very specific kind of curry, yeah, wouldn't it? it would have been that there was, from what I understand about the history of curry in the UK, it was, there wasn't, actually a lot, of the, the, a lot of the people that came to the UK as immigrants and set up curry houses were all from a very similar region. Yeah. Uh, sometimes not even from, from India, but from Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, well, maybe you know more about, this, about this, this history than I do, but basically they were creating curries for the British palate. Yeah. Right? Uh, and, you know, as, as spicy as, as, as the British people could cope with. Um, and also don't forget the cost of importing some of these ingredients would have been really expensive at the yeah. time, wasn't it? Yeah. It, well, I mean, wow. I mean, that, that, that's changed dramatically. I mean, with people traveling... And uh, people coming to live here from different countries, you know, and, and they've brought their ingredients with them or, the, or their desire to have those ingredients that make, you know, that the, the are familiar from home. So, you know, if you, you, you go to any greengrocers now or even in the supermarkets, you know, the, the range of what we would have called exotic, yeah. you know, produce. It's now commonplace. Is, is now mainstream. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you look at sweet potatoes or butternut squash or, you know, avocados. You know, these things were, you know, kale. Kale was valueless. Kale, you know, you wouldn't have been out of gift. You, you couldn't have forced, paid someone to eat kale 15, yeah. 20 years ago. Now, we, we, you know, we can't get enough of it. But it's all changing. But, but yeah, my parents now, you know, they, they, they like Thai, I mean, so Thai food, Vietnamese food. Um, I mean, I wouldn't say they're like adventurous with food, but certainly their their palates have, have broadened, um, and and they cook from my recipe book as well. So oh, good. you know, so okay. they, they'll replicate. That. But my dad, my dad's sort of getting more into cooking as he gets older. I think he's got a bit more time, you know. So yeah. Um, so yeah, listen. But we had a we had a traditional, you know, we had seven, eight, nine, ten meals on rotation. Oh, and um, what were those staples? 
So you would have shepherd's pie. I mean, mince was featured heavily in my, you know, you'd have had your, your shepherd's pie or your cottage pie. You'd have had your spaghetti bolognese. You'd have had uh, maybe a gammon. You'd have had your roast dinner on a Sunday always, then something left over with that on the Monday. Um, you know, we may have had some form of, of, of curry, um, maybe like a chicken casserole sort of thing. But, um, but yeah, so you're, you're reasonably sort of standard fare, fish and chips. Did, steak, you, did you ever help in the kitchen? Yeah, I loved, I, I've always loved cooking actually, ever since I can remember, really. I've always loved sort of trying to add different things, you know, um, you know, what happens if I put that in? And I wonder, you know, I've always been quite sort of, advent, not adventurous necessarily, but curious and experimental, yeah, as to what goes with what and why does that work and why doesn't that work? And that's disgusting and why was that so, dis- well, how did I make and that so bad? W- were your family happy to try your creations? Yeah, absolutely. And do you know what I've done now with my boys, you know, for the, I've got two young boys, six and two. They love making potions and messes and, and getting their hands dirty and all of these sorts of things. Um, and I thought, why am I, why are we just making a, a, a sort of, you know, ultimately like a Play-Doh concoction or, or, you know, just flour and water or, you know, whatever it might be. Why are we not now just making, you know, an omelette or, you know, a, a bread mixture, you know, a dough or a, or a cake mixture or whatever it might be. So then they, you know, then they get to boast of both worlds. You know, they get to crack their eggs, they get to put the flour in the water and, and the butter and mix it all up. And but then you put you put it in the oven or you you, you put it in a pan and and then they can make something and then they can eat the, what they've made. And and you know, they're both they love it. You know, we we spend when when I'm home. I mean, yeah, we travel a lot for work, but um, but when I'm home, we yeah, we, we we all cook in the in the kitchen together, the three of us, and it's it's nice. Are there any ingredients which you're particularly excited about at the moment that, you know, when you were back in your, in your greengrocer days, if you thought, oh, if only I was selling that, that would be flying off the shelves now in my, in my capable hands? Um, I, I don't think it's changed. I don't think there's anything that's sort of come out in the last sort of three or four years, really, that, that I sort of think, oh, wow, I wish I'd had that. I just I sort of wish everybody had cottoned on to the the unnecessary use of single plastic a little bit earlier. I think we, if, we, if we'd have started making headway into that. There's some, been some developments in uh, the dispenser units and stuff for, for, for helping reduce packaging. They, they weren't really commonplace when I had my shop. So I can sort of see how I would fit it out now, yeah. you know, with the, you know, the dispensers that yeah. you sort of, you know, people bring their ice cream tubs and, yeah. and these sorts of things in and fill them up or whatever, you know. These are extremely common now in some parts of the West Coast of America. Oh, there are many supermarkets, are particularly in San Francisco, where there's, you just, people are just coming in with, you know, big bagfuls of different containers. Great. And, and, and the thing is, it's often cheaper, right? So getting olive oil and putting it in your own bottle, they're yeah. selling it at a, at a cheaper price. Well, that, that, well that's interesting, yeah, because absolutely in principle... If you're not paying for the packaging, it should be cheaper. You know, packaging well, has not, a cost. Well, it's not, yeah, and it's not just the cost of that packaging, is it? It's the fact you've got to transport it, mm. right? You know, and, and every time you have a bottle, there's going to be air that you're having to pay to ship. Of course. Do you think that the, the prevalence of the recycling movement in the past 10, 15 years um, has accentuated the problem? That if only we weren't, if only we didn't think the recycling was such a good thing, that we wouldn't have felt, uh, we would have felt less guilty about using all this plastic? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think. There's a real, there's still a lot of confusion about what can be recycled, what can't be yeah. recycled. Then there's, a, then there's a real discrepancy within local authority to local authority to actually what they recycle. And we've seen time and time again that actually even what we consider to be recycled is just being taken to the Far East and, and dumped somewhere, yeah. which is absolutely disgraceful. It should be criminal, really. I mean, how that's happening, I, I just, I think is beyond me. And it's a sort of out of sight, out of mind. But, you know, the great work that Hugh... Uh, has done, um, and uh, and obviously David Attenborough, you know, has, has really brought it to the fore. I mean, you know, bottled water, coffee, takeaway coffee cups, you know, uh, you know, these are small things. These are one thing at a time, you know, the carrier yeah, bags. I mean, two or three years ago, there's no way I would have been carrying around a bottle like this, is there? Everyone's got, well, not everyone, that's not fair, but I mean, lots yeah. of people have got, yeah. which is great. And, the, and the, you know, that's the thing. Get yourself, get your, you know, a, a re- reusable water bottle, get yourself a reusable coffee cup, get yourself a few, you know, nice jute bags or bags for life. And then suddenly just those three things will make a big difference and then go and then find the next thing and then the next thing and just keep going from there. Yeah, it doesn't need to be a big radical lifestyle change all at once, does it? No. So if only we'd listened to you 10 years ago, then uh, supermarkets would have, would have all been plastic free. Uh, w- what are your predictions for what a supermarket, if everyone does the right thing, yep. what's a supermarket going to look like in 10, 15 years time? Well, 
there's a lot of issues at the moment that I think need addressing and a lot of them revolve around food. You know, I think the health, our health is, is a real issue. Um, you know, you've got 62% of the UK population is now overweight. Uh, 25% of us are now obese. Um, 3.8 million of us have type 2 diabetes, which is rising year on year. Um, and we have a lot of food poverty as well and a yeah. lot of food waste. So we've got these, 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 these issues. It and doesn't really make sense, does it? And Some then you've got the environmental impact of all of these things as well. So, yeah, I mean, how have you got two, between 2 and 10 million tonnes of food going in the bin, depending on you know, how you quantify it you know, and, and at what stage in the process. But two, between 2 and 10 million tonnes of food are being wasted every year. Um, and we've got 8 million people in some form of food poverty and 4 million people using food banks. So I think we're going to see the social conscience of our businesses grow. Yeah. I think we have an expectation that is now profit. You chasing profit is not enough anymore. And I don't think we're going to continue to accept that. And I think there's going to be a huge wholesale change, a real sea change in that. And I, I think, you know, it's not enough that, you know, these huge corporations just say, well, listen, it's all, you know, it's about customer satisfaction and share price. Mm. I think there's going to be a third thing. I think it's going to be what are you doing the right thing? Yeah. Are you... Are you making the right decisions based on on the on the well of the planet or the well of the people or you know? And I think that's I think that's going to change. And I think you'll see. Yeah, of course, the packaging will be reduced. It will be phased out. I think we're going to see reformulate you know wholesale reformulation of some of our foods. You know, we you know we've seen the sugar drinks, the 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 the, the sugar tax on the drinks, yep. which was mandatory. Um, they've made a voluntary or they've requested a voluntary reduction of sugar and calories in in lots of foods. Um, by 2020, so by next year, they want they want a 20% reduction in calories and sugar and and salt. Um, so I think you know we'll, I think maybe we'll start seeing some products not available. Yeah, I think we'll see some huge price changes. I think we're going to see some big price increases. I think food inflation is inevitable. I think you know Brexit has made it a bit more immediate, but this has been coming. If you think about every single facet or factor in growing produce or sorry in in producing food, whether it's being grown or manufactured or made or, or whatever, even importing it. Even important, it doesn't matter. They're going up. Land is becoming more scarce and more expensive. Water is becoming more scarce and therefore will become more expensive. You know, fuel, uh, labour, all of these things. I, I think this, politi this policy debate is extremely important because so I'm, I'm overweight. And I don't think that me being overweight is uh, down to the choices of other people. right? I, I think I have a personal responsibility because ultimately it's me that's been putting the food in my mouth. Mm -hmm. However, the more I've considered it, the more I've thought, well, actually, I've been making choices about the food that I've eaten based on a certain choice architecture that's been made on my behalf, right? So the supermarkets that I've gone into, the products that have been available have been chosen by someone else. When I go to a restaurant, you know, what goes into the dish is broadly chosen by someone else. Uh, you know, the, the media that I enjoy, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, at some point, maybe, you know, maybe there's an argument to say, well, if, if we as individuals can't take responsibility for our own health, which we demonstrably can't, mm -hmm. right? Maybe there is a, a, an argument that, that governments or, or even, you know, private enterprise does do, I think it's called nudge theory, isn't it? You know, yeah. it does change the way in, in, which, in which we, we eat. Which side of this debate are you on? So, I take that I'm of the school of thought that you are not completely, no, I'm not talking about you specifically now, I'm talking generally, yeah. You're uh, very welcome to. No, you're not. You're neither completely blameless nor completely to blame. And I think when you start to look at the, the extraordinary facts of 62%, when it's the majority, it, it can't be the individual, yeah. can it? You know, it can't be the majority of people are doing something wrong. If the majority of people are doing something wrong, it's almost right. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, there's, a ta there's, an, there's an expression or in it. Or at least it's the normal. Yeah, absolutely yeah. not it's abnormal behavior no absolutely so i think there's a there's an italian uh, expression which is tutti capevoli nessuni capevoli which basically translates uh as if everyone is guilty then nobody is guilty and that i think really applies to this you know if one in four of us are obese and 62 percent of us are overweight then there is something drastically wrong and it is not lack of willpower or lack of movement or you know lack of knowledge it can't be. It can't be. You're telling me that the majority of the population used to know what they were doing and used to be able to exert a bit of self-control. Now suddenly someone's flicked a switch and stopped that happening. Impossible. What do you think about the prevalence of food delivery businesses, which we couldn't even have expected 10 years ago? 
Yeah, I mean, I don't really get involved in it, but it's very convenient, isn't it, on the one hand, you know, but uh, but there's obviously issue. I mean, this is the thing. You know, you've got everything at your fingertips, haven't you? At the touch of a button, you can have whatever you want delivered to you so, wherever so you're, you want. you're not feeding your boys with, with Uber Eats? I've never used it. I don't have it on my phone. There we go. Uh, I, I've never used any of those takeaway delivery. Listen, I'll, don't get me wrong. We'll have a takeaway every now and again. Like, I, you know... Fish and chips. We fish and chips and a car. We've got a great curry house down the road from us, and we, you know, and it's not, you know, it's for me. Uh, that's a treat, you know. But but I think, do you know, that's part of the problem. I think it's gone from being a treat to being, a, you know, a nigh a on daily occurrence. You know, I mean, I, I can count. So when I was growing up, I I vividly remember, vividly, the first time I had Kentucky Fried Chicken. You know, it was Christmas time. We'd been to a like a pantomime, driving home quite late. Everyone was hungry. My mum's like, oh, I'm not, I don't want to cook when we get... And we were in Feltham, and it was brand new, like brand spanking. And it was like, what is this? I mean, it was like, <laughs> my word. But, you know, the, that food landscape has changed unrecognizably. I'd love to try fried chicken for the first time again. How good must oh, that be? Oh, mate, <laughs> as I must have been yeah. eight or nine, maybe. Yeah. I mean, we wouldn't have had... I mean, you, you talk about fast food restaurants. We had McDonald's. That yeah. was it. That was nigh on it. Or you might have had a Wimpy or a Starburger or something. You know, this. but this was... You know, I used to go... We used to go out for the big family celebration dinners annually to the harvester. I mean, that was that was like, and everyone was dressed up, and that was a proper thing. And I could, you know, everyone would have prawn cocktails, steak and chips, and and <laughs> um, and black forest gato. You know, it was, but but that was annual. Yeah. Not even every year. You know, my boys can. You know, like. My boys would have eaten out the six and two. They are. They would have eaten out probably more yeah. in their six and two years than I probably yeah. did in the first 15, 18 years. And what are the staples in your home now? In terms of meals, yeah. In terms of what you're cooking, it's not the same ten dishes that your parents had on rotation. No, it's is not. It? No, but do you know what? But there is a lot of of repetition. But then you tweak it a little bit. You know, that's the thing. I think that's what you do, and you tweak it to keep it a bit more interesting and varied, but you also tweak it depending on what, what you've got, what needs using up. You know, I'm a big fan of using up leftovers. You know, I, I hate food wasters, as we've, we, we touched upon earlier. Um, fish pie is a big favourite in our house. Um, I love a pie. Steak and ale pie is, is, is great. You know, basically anything with, as you, you'll probably get the, the thing, anything with mashed potatoes is all right yeah. by me, you know. Um, just, just before we move on, I'm, I'm completely fascinated by the food waste problem. Uh, yeah. This is actually one of the reasons why I started working on this, on this project, Pona, in the first place. And, and what, what I find uniquely fascinating about the food waste problem is it transcends, uh, any, it transcends basically any metric. So it doesn't matter whether you're a rich country or a poor country. It doesn't matter whether you're a country of abundance or a, covent, uh, a country of scarcity. Uh, and it doesn't matter what gender you are. It doesn't matter where you fit in the socioeconomic spectrum. There is always food waste at basically every single part of the value chain in, in every single country. And you, you, you compare our country to a country like Nigeria, which has 70% food waste. That's, that's caused uh, for a different reason uh, than, than, say, food waste in the UK. That might be to do with uh, poorer infrastructure, right? So eggs on a road, they break, uh, or poorer refrigeration in, in some rural parts, in restaurants. And, and I think that it is absolutely unconscionable for to buy something in a supermarket that's already gone through that entire value chain and there's already been loads of loss, mm. right? So you know, if, if, if you're buying one cabbage, presumably, you know, you've got to assume that maybe one in three of those cabbages was rotten and couldn't have been picked or, you know, then it was transported, then one, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that one cabbage that's on your dining, dining room table, I'm not sure why you put it there, but, you know, for the, for the sake of me making my point, I put it on a table. Uh, that one cabbage, that kind of represents uh, more food production than that one cabbage, doesn't it? Of course it does, yeah. And but and the energy and effort well and exactly cost. And the refrigeration and the cost. But knowing all this and, and truly believing that there are very, uh, you know, I'm I'm one of these people that uh, you know I, I'm I don't believe that we as individuals uh, just by doing our bit are going to save the, the the planet. Right? I do think that there needs to be a big global movement, and I think you know it's just changing our personal behaviour won't be enough. But that's still important. But even knowing all this, I still find myself throwing away food that I've bought because I haven't been able to use it in time um, or because I'm not sure if it might, if it might be bad. Um, I'd love to just take a quick tangent here and pick your brains mm -hmm. on, you know, for, for, for people that, you know, are like me, that they are persuaded this is a massive problem and they feel ashamed. What are the simple strategies they can do uh, to, to make sure that, that none of this food ends up in the, in the bin? So the, my answer to that starts with the answer I answer a lot of questions with. Um, and it could be a question of, how do I save money? How do I take the pressure out of cooking? 
how do I waste less food? And that's plan. Because the only reason you're throwing food away is because you've bought stuff without knowing when you're going to eat it, what you're going to eat with it, and when you're going to eat it. Eyes bigger than your belly in the supermarket. Well, yeah. I mean, like that's the thing. Like, oh, I'm going to buy some flat parsley and some basil and some, you know, pesto and and the yogurt and the the chilies and the garlic and the, you know, whatever it might be. But without knowing that Monday I'm having this meal, therefore I need X, Y, and Z. Tuesday I'm having this, so I have X, Y, and Z. So if you go into a supermarket armed with a, a... this is right. Let's start at the very beginning. Okay, so the week before, Sunday, for example, you sit down and you work out what meals you're going to be having Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Then you make a list of all the things that you're going to need to make those. Then you take it into your kitchen, cross-reference it and cross off everything you've got. Therefore, you've got your net list. That's what you need. And you go and buy that. If you go and buy that and then stick to your meal plan, there is no real reason why any of that would go in the bin. Then also adapt it, change it, utilize the leftovers, freeze, you know, freezing food. You know, there is no excuse. There is, you know, I understand, you know, space is smaller. Yeah, people, people only have like a small... Tiny. Some people have that little ice, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, thing in the top of their freezer. I get, I get it. That, you know, we don't all go home to a big chest freezer. I understand that. But freezing, mm. you know, making so- making stock, making sauces, making soups. There's a misconception about freezing too, though, isn't there? Because I think we associate freezing with like bad ready meals, right? You know, they're frozen and they're bad. Therefore, if I freeze, you know, some of if I freeze meat, then it's going to go bad. Yeah. But it, I mean, I don't think that's ever true, is it? Are there examples no. of food that? You know, that you really do noticeably reduce their quality as a result yeah, of freezing yeah, them? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, but then it depends what you're going to do with it afterwards. Yeah, listen, the internal integrity of, of some, or the internal structural integrity of, of some things will be compromised. You know, if you froze a cucumber, it'd be disgraced, like disgusting. Like, But then if you're freezing spinach or something that will sort of start to break down, like a banana, banana's probably a perfect example, actually, that you freeze it. It's not going to be the It won't come out when you defrost it. It won't ever be what it was, but it, it was won't be still, rejuvenated like a no, no, no. But <laughs> like it's still, cream. but it's still perfect. Yeah, still perfect for a banana bread or a smoothie. Better even, arguably, for a smoothie. You know, or, or whatever you might be doing. So most that you know, lettuce and and anything with a really high water content, you're going to struggle to 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 freeze. And then and then the, you can freeze it. Of course, you can. The problem comes when you defrost it um, you can freeze it and throw away yeah 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 which sort of defeats the object doesn't it but um but but most things you know most things yeah. you can freeze you know i freeze eggs you know split them you know separate you know how often do you need egg yolks or just an egg couple of egg whites and you always need them at a the time when you haven't got any eggs but yet you might have thrown eggs away the week prior, yeah. you know, and then you need them the next, da, 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 whatever. So, you know, for, to listen, try and freeze as much as you can, but then don't freeze it like some sort of archaeological experiment. I mean, <laughs> freeze it and then use yeah. it in the next sort of, you know, it's not. And how do you tell, I think this is great advice and I wish I had the discipline to follow it to the letter to really plan. But I love being experimental, right? I love going to a particularly uh, an exotic supermarket or a supermarket from a different country and going, well, I haven't got a clue what this is. Kimchi paste. Yeah, why not? What do you think I should do in order to uh, to adopt your advice, but also still maintain the same sense of spontaneity and fun in the kitchen? So there's no reason why you could, they're, they're not exclusive things for me. I've, I, what I sometimes recommend to people is, is leave yourself a freestyle day. But then... If you like to be creative and you want to challenge yourself, challenge yourself by opening that veg drawer or your cupboard and seeing what you've got. Use the internet if you want, if you need a bit of guidance. And say, like, you know, put in, punch in, you know, three or four or five of the ingredients that you've got that need using up and then be experimental and bold and brave and and creative with those. You know, that's the way to challenge yourself. I'm going to challenge myself not to throw anything away and try a new dish. And maybe you go and get a bit of kimchi paste or or whatever, harissa or whatever, you know, whatever it might be to bring those things together. But the, the, the main crux of the issue is you're not throwing anything away. You're actually using that and utilizing everything that you've got. And it's, a, it's money as well, isn't it? It's money through the food chain and it's money out of your pocket as well. Is your signature dish something wild and experimental? No, far from it. <laughs> what, so what's the thing that, uh, that you'll go to as kind of something that you know you can execute to absolute perfection? Well, I think anyone can execute this to absolute perfection. But uh, for me, one of my favorite all-time comfort, cuddle on a plate. Like you're a bit, 
you know, you might be a bit under the weather or, you, or you've, you've had a really hard week at work or, you know, whatever it might be. And, and I come home and, and put sausage and mash with some onion gravy and a bit of buttered cabbage and maybe some peas that, you know, a little bit of mustard. That for me is just, I, you know, I'm getting excited thinking about it. I, <laughs> I kind for my dinner. <laughs> I associate bangers and mash as kind of the, a dish from the part of the world where you're from. Yeah, yeah. And it was, it was, I think it was my favourite growing up as a kid and it still remains my favourite now. I mean, I've eaten in loads of Michelin star restaurants. Uh, you know, I, I know lots of Michelin star chefs. Uh, you know, I, I eat, fabulous fabulous exotic well executed fine dining food but if you put that in front of me like you've got a friend for life because that's 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 bang on so what's special about your bangers and mash nothing really i mean i make it i do make an exceptional mashed potato do you do the french method of just using it as a conduit for butter yeah pretty much salt and butter yeah Yeah. half pepper salt and butter loads of it yeah you know warm the milk up warm the butter up warm the milk up um, you know, use a good potato again. Like I'm, you know, Maris Piper is a good all-rounder. So for why me. is a Maris Piper good for mashed again, potato? Because of the dry matter in there, so you you can make it really creamy. So that you don't means that it's a fluffy, a fluffy potato, fluffier, fluffier, yeah. fluffier, lighter. Um, and 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 do you know what? Again, life lessons and something that's true. Do you know what? Do you know what makes a good mashed potato? Effort. Put a bit of hard work yeah. in. Put a bit of elbow grease. You know, you, you've got to work it. Yeah. You know, I mean, you can. I know you can use the the, the sort of rice the machines rice, yeah. or whatever. Yeah, I don't do that. But listen, you just get to work with it. Yeah. You know, but you are right. They 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 might they might. Some of my dietitian friends might not be too pleased with the amount of salt and butter, but it's but it is what it is. Oh, the, the way that I found making mashed potato really nice. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Is I uh, heat cream up and infuse it with anything that I've got. You know, yeah, so there's like nice. rosemary or garlic. And so, you know, I don't use half butter, which yeah. I think is very good. I'll use a quarter butter and then a quarter cream. Which is better. That's is it a, better? Yeah, cream is, cream is less fat than butter. Oh, okay. Well, that's all right then. I should add more. So single, I think single cream has something like, I think it's 23% okay. fat. And butter is like 80 or 90%. Yeah. So Whichever way you look at it, it's still not ideal, is it? For sure. Okay, so you've got a really simple... It's not a salad. Yeah, right. Is it? You but, you, but, but listen, I eat salads. I love a salad. You know, and I love veg. And I eat a lot of veg. Um, but but bangers and mash for me, you know, when I have it, I, wanna, and I want it to be So nice. you've got really simple creamy mash. What kind of sausages are you using? But for me, plain pork from the butcher, really good quality. Like really, really good quality. What kind of meat, meat uh, percentage are, the, are we talking? Do you know what? I don't know, actually. I've never checked, but I mean, like decent. I mean, he makes them himself. He minces the, the, the pork and he makes them on site, you know, and he's a great butcher down in the local farm shop to me. Really, really good. Uh, it's probably, I'd imagine it's probably like a 70, 80% sort of vibe, right. isn't it? One of the things that I've personally been struggling with is I've comp- I accept the moral case for not eating meat from an environmental point of view and probably from a health point of view. Uh, and I was I thought your documentary uh, about meat was absolutely excellent. It was um, called The Truth About Meat, where you basically you, you, you took a deep dive into all of the things that, uh, you know, that, that are known to be problematic about meat. As deep a dive as you can in an hour. I mean, it's, it's a big subject. Listen, there's lots. I mean, the, this whole sort of meat, free or plant-based diet is growing there's no two ways about it i mean i think there's 3.8 million vegetarians in the uk now and i think there's like 1.25 million vegans and and a lot more flexitarians you know i eat meat my wife's vegetarian my boys eat meat but we will go you know two three days without eating meat sometimes you know and i think i don't think you need meat in your diet all the time not every day but what i would what i'm a big advocate of when you do eat meat Spend as much money as you can on it, yep. you know, which sort of goes contrary to, to the advice that I normally yeah, give, yeah. you know. But actually, s- save money where you can. But for me, when you when you and listen, if you can't listen, if you're if you can't afford to buy chicken that that has you know had a lot more consideration to the welfare given. If you listen, I can't. I'm not judging anyone that is struggling to feed their family. Like I will not. Yeah, of course, I will not. But. As much as you can spend on your meat, that will ensure better welfare for the animal, which is important. It's respectful, uh, and it will also ensure better quality. Um, and I think that's what you—that's what you want from meat. I think we should eat less of it, and better. And when we eat it, eat better quality. So e- even after researching and presenting this program for an hour, where you looked at basically the the worst that the meat industry could have possibly presented to you, I imagine. How with a, and I'm saying this as someone that does eat meat, how with a, with a good conscience can you eat sausages? So 
it was interesting. I think when I went to the abattoir, it was it was quite a moving day. I think it, it took its, you know, it, it, it sort of shocked me a bit. You know, obviously I've always made the connection between, you know, meat and animals. You know, although not everybody makes that connection. Yeah, we we I think sometimes we conveniently yeah. brush over it. But um, we have y- different words for it, don't we? Yeah, exactly. We, yeah, I know, we I know. eat beef and we we look at cows in the field. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, but seeing a half-ton cow come in and, and get shot in the head and, and sort of collapse in front of you and then get, you know, hung up and quartered and have their head cut off and, and all of this sort of stuff. And I was in a respectful, good, artisan, small abattoir. You know, if you went to one you know, one of the larger well, factories... They were the ones which were happy to to go on film, I imagine, right? Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So, um, but it's, do you know what the thing I took from it the most was if you eat meat, and listen, I think you're entitled to. Um, it's not for me to say otherwise. You, but I think you have a responsibility to eat, or certainly be prepared to eat all of the animal. You know, for 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 someone to say that they're happy for a half ton cow to be killed, so they can have a you know two hundred gram filet mignon, or mm. you know I only I only eat this cut, or I only have that bit. That's not cool. Like. We have to, you know, nose to tail. If you're not prepared to eat tongue and liver and and the offal and, and all of these things, then maybe, maybe you you maybe there's not something not quite right with with your sort of connection with it, really, because that I don't think that's fair. That's not fair on the animal. I don't think that's fair on on anything, really. So, um, you know, and we do. I love liver. Liver, bacon, and onions is you know fabulous. Um, but yeah, listen, I, I, my wife's vegetarian. I don't eat. I don't eat meat an awful lot. And I and I certainly ate less after making that program. Did you? Yeah, did yeah after going to the abattoir. Yeah, I don't think I ate meat for a fortnight. But nevertheless, bangers and mash is delicious. Still favourite. Yeah, it's <laughs> still my favourite. So we've got these incredible sausages, pork sausages on on a bed of creamy mash. No flavouring. No flavouring the sausages that I find. Oh, so it's not like a Cumberland or no, a... God, no, God, crying out loud, no, no. I'm just pure. you're a purist. Yeah, okay. I am, yeah. And how do you cook the sausages in a pan? In a no, uh, in just in the oven. Oh, you oven cook sausages? Yeah, bake them. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, do you I get a nice skin still if you do? You that? do, yeah, 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 yeah. You can do absolutely, and and you, you, I mean, the, you know, when you buy a good sausage, not you know, you don't get that sort of expenditure of liquid, yeah, you know, leakage, as, yeah. as much. But you still get a bit. But uh, for me, frying them in, I, I've never really got on with frying them in the pan too much. Um, I think if you do, you have to do it on a really low temperature to get yeah, good results. Yeah, you do, and you, you yeah. keep moving them around, and yeah. you know, they're, 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 they're not round. The, then, yeah, they're, yes, <laughs> that's right. <You> know? <laughs> so um, I stick them in the. I'm perfectly happy with sticking yeah. them in the oven, but but I cook them. I cook them reasonably well. I, I don't like a particularly pink sausage. I, sure, I, 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 I probably go. You know, well, uh, it's not really the right cut of meat to eat rare, is it? No, <laughs> no, it's not. Um, Although pink pork is is back on the menu, isn't it? Yeah, but well, but at least by eating the sausage, we are true to your mantra of. Making making sure that every part of the animal. Uh, and just to round this off then, I don't think Bangers and Mash is complete without a good gravy. Yeah. What's the secret to your onion gravy? Ah, uh, well, I mean, a bit of stock. Start with some stock. Get, get some, first of all, the onions. Low, low. Refer to episode one uh, to find out how to make a perfect chicken stock. There you go. Um, get loads of onions. Really caramelise them. Get them like cooking for a lot, a long time. And how are you doing that? Just salt, salt in a pan and leave yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Get the the salt obviously takes the, some of the moisture out, and then just time. You know, just you know, just keep them on a pan for for a long time. Sometimes, depending on how fancy I'm feeling, you know, you might puree them, and then. Basically, I like to make a big batch of gravy and then stick it in the freezer and you can bring some out and then just do a bit by bit because, you know, making a really good gravy can take some time. Sometimes I go a bit, you know, a bit more chef with it, like it's almost on the on the, the, the edge of being a jus, yeah. if you will, uh, you know, with some red wine. And, and then, you know, you might need to thicken it with a bit of cornflour, which I know the purists, are, uh, you know, are anti. But bit, a bit of butter as well. Why not? Yeah, in for a penny. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. Yes, I have been known. Yes. Great. And uh, this, this dish, do you think this is going to be kind of your family legacy when, when your children grow up and they're interviewed uh, on, on this podcast um, when I'm an old man? Are they going to say, my dad, he was a very basic man. He had, he, he had this, this one boring dish on rotation. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe. What do you think? What do you think no, is going to be the, no, the staple of your children's generation? Interesting. I think well, it could well be plant-based, couldn't it? Could be insects. <laughs> could be vacuum-packed. Space food. I mean, who knows what? Who knows where we're going with what, it? What do you hope? Because you're you're in a unique position that you can change the public's view on these kind of issues. 
yeah, I, I mean, do we ever go? Do we ever go back? But then you know, we we also you know, over history things are cyclical, aren't they? Um, I'd like to go back to seasonal, a little bit more, um, a little bit more self-sufficient. I think you know we don't need strawberries in December. I don't, you know, I, I don't think we need salad all year round. I think you know there's an. I, I think to go back to a slightly more seasonal diet, which is a bit more responsible, um, not necessarily draining uh, the world resources as as much as you know shipping stuff all the way around the world. Um, you know, listen, some, you know, but, but, but by the same token, we can't grow some things. We can't grow bananas. I still think we, sh- we you know, we want to eat bananas. We want to eat easy peelers. We want to eat pineapples. You know, but that's fine. But as much as we can, when possible. So, like, when apples are in season in the UK, they sit alongside apples from New Zealand. Completely unnecessary. Mm. So, I think, you know, there are times where actually we can take a slightly more simplistic view and, and you know, use our own produce first. I think that that would make a, a big difference, and I think we will go more plant based. And and as a green grocer or former green grocer, um, you know, a bit more of a plant based diet is is probably not necessarily a bad thing. That was Chris. I could have spoken to Chris for hours uh, if only his schedule would have allowed. Unfortunately, he was basically doing back-to-back stages at this good food show. Uh, And so I was lucky to even grab an hour of his time. Very, very grateful to him. Uh, I think Chris is one of these dream guests, isn't he? I mean, you you could just tell he's got all of these super strong convictions about food. Uh, And that's because he's a doer. You know, he's been there on the front line. He was genuinely selling fruit and veg. And when he does his TV presenting, he he's not just reading from a script, he really knows his stuff and when he's going into people's houses for Eat Well for Less, he's genuinely giving his real advice and his cookbook are his actual recipes that work for him uh, despite the fact he's not had professional chef's training. Uh, I've learned so much from my chat with Chris uh, and I hope to get him back on the podcast in a future episode because there's so much more uh, I'd like to learn from him. Um, If you enjoyed this podcast, if you're new to the podcast, then please do stick around. Please subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to it. Uh, You can get in touch with me or my Instagram, which is Ollie Horn Picks, O W L I E H O R N Picks, uh, or you can email us at podcast at pona.app. That's podcast at pona, P O N A dot app. Uh, I've got another fantastic episode that I recorded on location at the Good Food Show coming up this time next week. So I'll see you then. Beef stock.